You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So we continue our journey through Mark in Mark chapter 10. So if you want to take out your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, however you do that, we'll take a look here at at, uh, this incredible story at the end of chapter 10. It's just just so amazing to see what Jesus is doing in this time. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who were following were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let each one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, he answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but... (laughs) To sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead... Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, but came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Mary rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called a blind man. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi. I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of God for us to be enriched by this morning. It's quite a a story. Because this picture on the road to Jerusalem is everything. We're finishing up with this story, the second major section of the book. The first section began back on the sea when he called the disciples and took them out on the boat and the storm came and he stilled the storm and they said, what manner of man is this? Who is this Jesus? And that first section was all about who is this? And that story, well, let me put it on a map up here because I'm a map guy. 
Up here on the north side up by the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum, which has been the center of their discussions, the center of their interventions. And they're up there, and all these things are going on. They're challenging him. He's teaching him, doing miracles. And they're all asking the question, who is this man? And they head north of the Sea of Galilee up to Caesarea Philippi. Jay took us through that passage and showed us his pictures from being there. And at that spot, Jesus turned to the disciples and said, who do you say that I am? Concluding that first section. And Peter stood up and spoke for the group and said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. They've figured that much out. And that begins now the second set. They go north from there, up probably to Mount Hermon, where the transfiguration happened at the beginning of chapter 9. And there on the mountain, as Peter, James, and John are with Jesus, he is transfigured. And he's conversing with Eli, Elijah and Moses. And the Father himself says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Quite a story. And they come down, and there's confusion going on. And as they head south from there, headed down, and by chapter 10, the section we're in right now, they have come down through Judea, through Samaria, and they're on the east side of the river Jordan. And the chapter 10 events are happening there in Perea, over near what Amon, Jordan, today. And that's where our story begins today, because east of there is Jericho, down on the west shore of the Jordan River. And from there, it's a long road up to Jerusalem, the capital city. And Jesus is committed to being on the road to Jerusalem, the last stage of that. And it's in that context, it's in that context that our story begins. I want to put a little bit of background on this, because you have to understand this to understand the conclusion of this section. So discipleship lessons we've seen, Mark chapter 8, right after Peter says you are the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus takes him aside and tells him what's going to happen. You're going to, I'm going to get crucified. And he gives him this lesson. Who wants to be a disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Who wants to save their life will lose it, who wants to lose their life will, for me and for the gospel will save it. In chapter 9. They've just come off the Mount of Transfiguration. They've just seen the demonized boy healed. And <laughs> Jesus says, what are you guys arguing about? And they're arguing about who's greatest. Like, what? And Jesus sits them down and says, remember, anyone who wants to be first must become last and serve all. And what we're seeing here, as Jesus concludes, I want you to be sure that anyone who gives a cup of cold water in my name will certainly not lose their reward. So what he's saying here is greatness is about serving, which is an upside-down kingdom kind of thing. But this serving is a serving which is rewarded. It's not just a giving away and lose. It's an investment in kingdom, and there is Reward in that, serving. So the first lesson in discipleship is about greatness. A second, beginning of chapter 10, 
we talked about last week is what is the character of marriage? In a context where divorce was routine, any man could say to any wife anytime, get out. And she's gone. Jesus said marriage is one man, one woman, husband and wife for life. That's the kingdom value. And God is always moving us toward that kingdom value. Marriage is not a point of convenience. It's a point of kingdom living being worked out, a way of serving with great reward. He follows it up with the lesson of children. Gabe helped us see this. <laughs> children, the kingdom belongs such as these. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took one of the children in his arms, placed his hands on him, and Bless them. I just happen to have some children pictures here. Amazing that I would have grandkid pictures. Just probably stunned you. So there's at uh, the pumpkin patch there north of Kansas City, Lizzie and Michael and Charlotte, Lizzie's best friend on this huge rocking chair. It's so fun being there in the yesterday afternoon in the sun. And they measure themselves every year. And Michael with his incredible smile, Charlotte and Lizzie, aren't they cute? God, let's hear it for grandkids. That's why you get married, so you can have grandkids. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but see, children, children don't give you much return. Not at this age. Lizzie will be nine here in just a few days. Eight-year-old kids don't give you much back except cute, and they kind of mitigate that with some kind of not-so-cute times. <laughs> and Michael, who's got the most greatest smile in the world... Don texted me this week and said, did I have a deliberate defiance when I was three years old? <laughs> I said, no, son, you didn't. But Michael does. He's a brochures. See, children are not an asset at this age. But they trust when they're well-parented, and that's the picture that he's doing. Children show kingdom trust that they just trust and are valued. Sherry and I were at the First Image Banquet last night, Pregnancy Resource Center, one of our ministry partners here at Grace. And watching that time as the celebration went on, there was a woman from Cameroon who had come here to Clackamas Community College on a student, scholar, student visa. And while she was there, another man took advantage of her and she, knowing better, but what do you do? Ended up pregnant. And the man, being a very caring man, advised her to terminate the pregnancy, to use the nice terms. And she was able to find, by God's grace, the Pregnancy Resource Center. I'm not sure which one, perhaps the one down by Clackamas Town Center. And she found grace and caring in a time of incredible trouble, instead of, it's inconvenient, get rid of it. And as she told her story, she couldn't hold back the tears. But the thing that lit the whole place up is when that little four-year-old African girl walked up on stage with her mommy and grabbed a hold of her leg. Children show trust, and they're valued for life. It's what we stand for as Jesus' followers, and that's the lesson of the kingdom. 
to the rich man. Rabbi, what do I do to enter the kingdom of God? He says, go sell everything you have to the poor and go treasure in heaven, come follow me. And he didn't. He tells the people, the disciples, anyone who's left home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, fields, for me in the gospel, will receive a hundred times in this life and eternal life and the life to come. But many are first, will be last and last first. So we see here that possessions, possessions are valuable as they're used for kingdom purposes. How un-American. Because in America, the point is to get possessions so you can show off your nice home and keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. Or just enjoy the comfort of nice places and nice things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying nice things, but the whole point is how do you use those for kingdom purposes? One of the things I like so much about our church here is that we have a nice building here. We have a nice building here. A nice property. And we're using it constantly for kingdom purposes. Foster parents night out. 35 kids in here from the community so parents can have a respite night. People volunteering to, and going through the background checks so the kids can be safe. And we'd love to have 10 more. We need some more volunteers. And we use our building yesterday afternoon, Cornerstone Church used this auditorium for a memorial service for one of their people. We, give our, we use our building for kingdom purposes all the time. And when we ask you to give to support the ministry here, that's the things you're supporting. It's valuable things for valuable purposes. Our story. On the way to Jerusalem, the disciples were astonished and afraid. Why were they astonished? <laughs> Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Why are you doing that? I mean, we've had all kinds of trouble with Jerusalem people. Why are you going there? It doesn't make any sense. You're likely to get into trouble, Jesus. Let's just let the situation calm down. Let's go later. And they're afraid because they're going with him. Makes total sense why they're astonished at Jesus and afraid for themselves. Because it's not going to be a good picture. It's not going to be a good picture. Astonished and afraid. And Jesus makes his third prediction of what's going to happen. In the second part, the first part is, who is this man? Peter gives the culminating, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Then Jesus, the question from there, and we're finishing that is, what is he doing? And what's my part in that? Who is this man? He is the Messiah, the Son of God. What is he doing? He's going to give his life a ransom for sin. And we join him in that mission. The first confession leads to Jesus' prediction that he will be crucified. It's a passive thing. The second one in chapter 9, he says, men will crucify me. The third prediction here in chapter 10 is more specific. It'll be the chief priests and the teacher of the law who will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, a most despised, shameful thing to do. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Increasingly specific. Where does that come from? As Jesus is making that statement, we can find the echoes from the Old Testament of passages that have to have been ringing in his mind as he makes this prediction. Isaiah 50 is one of those. 
in the so-called servant songs of that great book Isaiah, where the servant says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. You know that happened to Jesus in the back room with Caiaphas' soldiers. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. There are the specific words. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Oh, they will shame him in every possible way. But because he goes as a servant of the Most High God, he cannot be shamed, ultimately, no matter what they do to him. And Luke picks up that phrase, that he sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Here he is just determined to go to Jerusalem. Isaiah 53 Another servant song, better known, he was despised, rejected by mankind. Man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, Isaiah tells us. Yet we consider him punished by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we were healed. This is ringing in Jesus' mind as he's predicting what's going to happen to him. Later on in that same song, chapter 53, verse 10 Jesus says what is just absolutely inexplicable, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. At first blush, that just sounds like cosmic child abuse until you begin to ponder what it means. Why is the father going to sacrifice his son? because his life will be an offering for sin. I'm a father of two biological sons. And I think if I took my son, Don, my firstborn son, and sacrificed him, I can't even begin to think of it. It's past even imagination to pull his chin back and slice his throat where a lamb would be sacrificed. And the father is way better than I am and far more compassionate than I am. What was the father feeling as he crushed, sacrificed his son? unbearable agony from the Father. Unbearable agony for Jesus as he was crucified on the cross. Why would they go through that mutual agony? Because he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, servant, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. There's a prediction of resurrection. There's a prediction of resurrection that does not soften the agony a whit. The mutual agony of father and son. Why? 
because my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. That's what Jesus is thinking about. These phrases are echoing in his mind as he predicts his crucifixion. What's the disciples' response? Again, when you read narrative, you should read it imaginatively. You should, pat, you should place yourself next to Jesus and among the disciples and think, what am I seeing? What's the tone of voices? What am I feeling? What am I smelling? As you live in the story, that's the way narrative is to be read. What would be your response if you heard Jesus say, I'm going to be flogged and spit on and mocked and crucified? What would you be thinking? We know what Peter did the first time. He said, wrong idea, and corrected Jesus. Not a good idea, but I get it. The second time, they were afraid to ask him what was going on. This time, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Boy, ask, write, hand a blank check to Jesus. What does he say? What do you want me to do? It's an incredible question. What do you want me to do for you, he said. And they replied <laughs> inexplicably, you want one to sit on your right and one to sit on your left when you come into your glory. Like, where does that question come from? Chapter 9, when they're arguing about the greatest, that kind of makes sense. That kind of makes sense. Because who was on the mountain with Jesus of the Transfiguration? Who was on the mountain? Peter, James, and John. They'd just been on the mountain. And they come down and the other guys are saying like, what, do you guys think you're special? And their answer is, yeah. We got to be with Jesus on the mountain. And I can see other argument developing. And Jesus said, you know, that's the wrong idea, guys. It's about serving. Now they're back to the same thing. Except it's an argument, it's a request of Jesus himself. Where did it come from? Well, just before this, Mark chapter 10, verse 29, anybody who's left stuff for me in the gospel will receive reward. If you leave things behind, Jesus promises reward. That he has just said, it's in their head. You will receive reward. Okay. And in Matthew's telling of that same story, Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, Truly I say at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then that phrase we just saw in Mark. Everyone who left homes and such for my sake receive a hundred times as much. So the idea of thrones is not an unlikely thing. They anticipate messianic kingdom. And they want to be special. You can see where it comes from. But it shows a heart. Who are the ones who are with Jesus when Jairus' daughter is raised? That amazing miracle when the Roman centurion comes and says, my daughter is dead, and Jesus goes to his home, goes into the room with the dead daughter. Who goes with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. On his transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. They're special. 
They want greatness. Now, nothing wrong with wanting greatness. Jesus actually affirms that. But the greatness they want is preeminence. There are 12 disciples. They're the special three. Peter, we want to be ahead of Peter. We want him to be like number five. And we want to be number one and two. You can see how that would develop. The desire for preeminence, the one who's looked on and say, wow, man, he counts. We want to be those that people stop and pay attention to when you come into the room. We want to be those who, when the meeting comes along and it's going, and we want to be that one who brings kind of the summary and everybody says, oh, yeah, good idea. You want to be the one that when you have done your shopping and gotten that really, 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 really nice shoes, that people say, wow, I want some like that. Or whatever it is. Preeminence. Proximity. I'm not the king. They know they're not the king. Jesus is the Messiah, not James and John. But they want to be close to the king. They want to be close to him. Because when you're close, you're in on the inner discussions. You're in on miracles that are only for a few. They're in for the time when you get to see the amazing things in their most amazing ways. They want proximity. They do. And they want power because to reign means to fulfill that ambition that says, I want to be the one who's telling people what to do. I want to be the one who's directing the organization. I want to be one who's setting the tone for the party. I want to be the one who's Whatever. That's what they want. And Jesus' response, it's kind of an astonishing response because the first thing he says, this statement is amazing. What do you want me to do for you, he says. And I think he means that. Their answer is, we want to sit on thrones next to you. What do you want me to do for you? That's Jesus' question for all of us. And how we answer that is a question to think about. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism which I'll be baptized with? What is that baptism? The cup of, well, some think that's the cup of God's wrath that's poured out on the sun, and the sun drinks the cup to, of wrath, God's wrath to divine dregs. I think that's not the case. Because he turns to the disciples and said, you will drink my cup. And they do not drink the cup of God's wrath. In fact, the whole point is they are spared from that because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But it is the cup of suffering and death. The cup of agony, the cup of Death, the cup of unbearable agony. And the disciples do drink that. Who is the first disciple killed by Herod? The same one who's killing Jesus. Who's the first disciple killed? Acts chapter 10. James. He would be the first to do that. John would live a long life of persecution. Tradition tells us that he died an old man, but in exile and under torture, they did drink the cup of suffering and death. 
And the baptism, I think that refers back to Mark 1, the baptism of Jesus, where he's baptized and anointed for the mission of Jesus, the mission of Messiah. And we do join him in that mission. We do join him in bringing the good news of the gospel to the world. We do join him in the persecutions that come for those who stand for godly integrity. We do stand and carry out the reality that we give up our comfort for the sake of the hurting and the broken and the homeless and the widow and the orphan. We do. We do. And we're baptized in that same mission when we do baptism here next week. Or it's the orientation next week, whatever's happening. We'll do the baptisms. And those people who will be baptized will be baptized into the mission of Messiah, just as Jesus was. And so it's going to be a lot of fun. So it's going to be a, a real challenge. We can, the answer. Of course. Now, naive. Oh, my gosh. But there's the heart. Yes, we will join you, Jesus. And he says, yeah, you will, actually. But you don't get to be at right and left because those places belong to those for whom it's been prepared. And there's an idea that the place of honor, the two thrones, is the right and left of hand. Jesus says he was crucified. And none of the disciples were there. It was two terrorists who joined him there. I don't know if that's right. But it's an intriguing idea. If you want to be honored for Jesus, the highest honor would be to die with Jesus for the sake of the king, not some sort of masochistic, self-indulgent thing. Those who regard as ruler of Gentiles lord it over them, their high officials exercise authority, and we know about that. He says, that's not the way of greatness. It's not the way of lording it over people. It's not the will to power. And when we look at our world today, if I look at the political stuff that's going on and I try to look at it as little as possible, it assaults me. And I look at our two presidential candidates and they both exemplify the will to power. Now they do it in dramatically different ways but they're premier examples of the will to power. And their whole goal is to be at the top of the heap and doing what they want to be done. And again, very different ways of carrying it out. The will to power. Of course, we know that that comes from the Austrian philosopher Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was incredibly intelligent philosopher, end of the 19th century, died in 1900. And before he went crazy, literally lost his mind from syphilis, he wrote some of the most powerful philosophy ever written from this perspective. And this is from his will to power. What is good? All that heightens the feeling of power. The will to power, power itself. That's good. What is bad? All that is born of weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power is growing, that resistance is overcome. Of course, the most famous follower of Nietzsche was Hitler. But it's not just Nazis who do this. There are two other philosophers at the same time 
Sigmund Freud said the driving principle is not the will of power, it's the will of pleasure. Viktor Frankl said, no, it's not the will to power, it's not the will to pleasure, it's the will to meaning, have my life count. I think all three of them are wrong. That's not the deepest driving passion. Oh, it may be of sinners, but of kingdom people, it's a different will to power, will to serve. He said, not so with you, and said, who wants to be great among you must be your servant, who must be first must be slave of all. The way of the servant for the kingdom of God, giving up our life, that's the way of great satisfaction. Before service this morning, Vanessa gave me a thing from a friend of hers, a Facebook acquaintance, Ugandan fellow, Lukaya Edward, maybe 22 years old, running a ministry to help children there in Uganda. I've been there, not at his place, but I know what they're doing exactly. And he said here, he said this is a common proverb in Uganda, it may be, I slept and I dreamed that life is all joy. Then I woke and I found that life is all service. Then I served and found out that service is joy. That's the way of the Savior. That's the way of Messiah. I served and I found that service is joy. Now, there are different kinds of things. In the will to power, it's to be the guy in charge, to have my ambition, have it be what's in it for me, what I want my way. That's the way of the Gentile Lord. On the other end, we've got the people pleaser, so to speak, and the people pleasers are the one that I want everybody to be happy. So I'm going to give myself away and I'm going to be not a servant but an enabler. So I give stuff away unwisely because, see, the servant of the Lord is giving myself to invest so people can be more like image of God people, more whole, more responsible, more built up. We don't give away for the sake of giving away. We give away for the sake of the kingdom of God. And that tension between what I want and what you want and what Jesus wants in the way of serving is everything. And that's what we ask together as we do our service, not just giving for the sake of giving, not just giving so that people will be happy, the people-pleasing way, but giving for the sake of the kingdom. Giving for the sake that brings redemption to the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor. Giving for the sake of unborn babies, perhaps. That they can find not only support to be born, but then support to, lot, to live. There are so many ways that we serve. So many ways we serve. But we serve kingdom values. We serve kingdom purposes. And there's huge joy. Even if it means giving up comfort, even if it giving up time, even if it gives up my own prerogatives. That's the way of the servant. That's the way of the master. Incredible phrase here. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. A whole sermon at least could be given to this one verse. What is he talking about here? The redemption, the ransom there is what Jesus, what Father did to get the people out of Egypt. In the Passover, the firstborn belongs to God. 
So in the Passover, they sacrificed the lamb, put the blood over the doorposts, and anybody who put blood over the doorposts, the father saw that and passed over that house. Those who did not do that, the wrath fell upon them, and the firstborn died. Redemption. Psalm 30, Psalm 130, powerful passage, concludes this way. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is chesed, unfailing love. With him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from their sins. Not just the guilt of sin, but the practice of sin. Redemption is people coming out of slavery to sin and all that that involves. There's a story that had been floating around, the Maccabean Revolt, 167 B.C., Judah Maccabee, Judah the Hammer, led the revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, the abomination of desolation, if you know Daniel 7 and Matthew 24, the super bad, ugly guy who was determined to have the worship of all gods in the temple of Yahweh. He ended up sacrificing a pig on the temple altar. And Judah led a revolt, and he and his brothers were captured eventually. In 2 Maccabees was a powerful story that was been well known in the time of Jesus. And Judah is standing before Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the greatest. For our brothers, after enduring a brief suffering of drunk of the ever-flowing life under God's covenant, but you, Antiochus Epiphanes, by the judgment of God will receive the just punishment for your arrogance. I, like my brothers, give out my body and life for the laws of our ancestors, appealing to God to show mercy soon to our nation, and by trials and plagues to make you confess that he alone is God, and through me and my brothers to bring an end to the wrath of the Almighty that justly has fallen on our whole nation because of our sins. That's the redemption story of Judah Maccabee, who was a follower of Yahweh. Of course, Antiochus was not pleased by this, but some man gave his life as a ransom for people like James and John, if you can figure that out. Who does Jesus give his life as a ransom for? Well, me. Of course he gave it for me. I'm special, right? Huh. The final story such a powerful story. Jesus is going now to Jericho, that town alongside the River, Jer River Jordan. And a blind man, Bartimaeus, sitting by this roadside, and he cries out when he heard it was Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's screaming out. The response is, shut up. But he wouldn't. He cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? Does that sound familiar? Rabbi, I want to see, he said. He didn't want to be greatest. He wanted to see. And Jesus said, your faith has healed you. He received his sight, and immediately he joined the march to Jerusalem. And in this sequence of response, this is the final story of Act 2 of Mark. We see the disciple Bartimaeus. His name, Bar, is son in Aramaic, Ben in Hebrew. It means son of honor. And his name and his response to the call of Jesus is the pattern for our discipleship. 
He is the honored one, the blind man who knows his need, doesn't hide it, in fact, can't hide it, recognizes Jesus. He's physically blind, but still recognizes who Jesus is and cries out to him, begging him, have mercy on me. And Jesus' response of healing is a gospel response from our Lord and Savior. And then his response to get up and follow Jesus is the gospel response in people. That's what we do here. In a moment, we will have our communion stations aside and prayer teams, and we're going to invite you to do some business with Jesus, pondering stuff. Because I ponder stuff all the time, you know that. This is what Jesus is saying to you. What do you want me to do for you? It doesn't make any difference if you're old like me and have served Jesus for a long time, or perhaps you're here and you're not even sure you like Jesus, much less follow him. Jesus says the same thing to all of us. What would you have me do for you? What are you going to write in? That request comes for you today. What would you have me do for you? The disciples said, we want to be special. Bartimaeus said, I want to be healed so I can follow. What would you put in there? Don't put in a Sunday school answer, I want to be rid of my sin. Put in something specific. I want to be rid of my cynical putting a stupid button on everybody. That's real. He laughs, but be around me, you'll experience it. (laughs) Not that I want that to happen. What do you want? Something to take away, perhaps, like my stupid button thing? Something to put on. I want to become a more compassionate man who speaks the word of God more powerfully for transformation. I get to see that, but I'd like to see more of it. What do you want me to do, Jesus says. What's the way of greatness for you? I mean, Jesus says it, and we all say, yes, that's true, the way of serving. But you know what? Somebody says, I love being a servant leader. Find out if he's really true. Treat him as a servant and see how it responds. Amazing how many people give the word of servant leader, but when you treat them like a servant, they act like a Gentile lord. How are you treated when somebody, how you respond when somebody treats you like a servant? It's a question. Disciples, well, we follow Jesus. I like Jesus. I don't get to define him. And I want to be like Jesus. That's the two chapters of Mark. Who is this man? And what is he up to? And what does that mean to me? Disciples, follow Jesus. What does that mean for you here at Grace Community Church? And our request is that you follow who we follow. Who is the blind one? Bartimaeus is physically blind, but spiritually very seeing. Who is this Jesus and what does he want? That phrase is one of those haunting phrases for Jesus. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for 
many. Will I join that and take the gospel to people in all of its different dimensions? That's what we're about here, grace. But another one that comes out of this particular story, as well as others, is the Jesus prayer, an ancient prayer that has been haunting me for a year or so. And I pray it a lot. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But instead of a sinner, then I put in something specific there. Lord Jesus Christ, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a cynical man. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a... Put in whatever you want there. I'm going to call the worship team up here. We're going to have three songs here, and we're going to invite you with the prayer teams and the communion tables to ponder this prayer. What does it mean to join the way of the servant? What does it mean to follow the way of Jesus, this one who is the Messiah, the Son of God, Savior? What does have mercy on me mean? What does give me grace so I can serve you? Let me use my strength even more powerfully for the sake of the kingdom. And then we'll sing, It's Well With My Soul. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.